You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, we start the last chapter of our study through the gospel of John today. I'm excited about the story that we have before us um, about the miraculous catch. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad or or went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Last week, we saw at the end of chapter 20, John's kind of purpose again of of why he's written the gospel of John to recollect the the things that really stood out to him in in Jesus's earthly life that would help bring us to our own faith, Uh, both that initial faith and that growing faith um, that would ultimately change our life, right? And so John has recorded specific things to help us believe. And he tells us he doesn't record everything, that he's recorded enough for us to believe. And so I challenged you last week to be content with what God's revelation does give to us and to believe what he's given to us, to believe what we do know. Um, And then to shape our life around what we know and to keep believing. And so that uh, meant, you know, we embrace this life promised by Jesus that he he offers us something better than insurance, right? Like he he offers us... um, this, this perspective, this environment where we know that he's working for our good at all times. Um, and then we talked about making plans to keep believing in him, that it's so important that we make plans to be in his word, uh, to be around other people who are in his word so that we can keep believing until he returns. And so I challenged you last week from an application standpoint, what are you letting shape your emotions and your beliefs more right now with the situation that we're in with the coronavirus? Are we allowing media or God's word to shape our emotions and our feelings about things? Um, what, are, what are we allowing to, uh, to feed us right now? Are we prone towards anxiousness because we're buying into uh, something from the media side of things? Or, or are we finding ourselves untroubled, right? Because Jesus has promised us that our hearts don't have to be troubled. Um, and so I challenged you last week to evaluate what you're allowing to shape your emotions. And then what are you doing to maintain contact right now with your church family? How are you making sure that you remain protected uh, during this time? Um, because it's so crucial that we keep believing, especially when our faith is put to the test. We come today to the miraculous catch, our summary sentence for today. Our failures and successes are determined by God's sovereign control rather than our own expertise reminding us that we fare far better when we trust Jesus rather than our own wisdom when it comes to our provision and care. Our failures and successes are determined by God's sovereign control rather than our own expertise, which reminds us that we fare far better when we have that rapid reaction to trust Jesus rather than relying on our own wisdom when we're thinking through how to provide and care for ourselves, for our families, for the things that we're involved in, the ministries that that we serve in. For our kids, because Jesus controls everything, we can trust him to provide us all that we need, right? We can trust him to provide us all that we need. 
Um, and what I want us to see today is that both uh, our failures, meaning the things that we attempt to do that, that don't go the way that we anticipated them going, the things that we attempt to do that do go the way that we anticipate them going, or maybe even beyond that. And, that, and that's what I mean by failures and successes. When we attempt to do something and it seems to work out, and when we attempt to do something and it seems to not work out, because ultimately we know there are no failures versus successes when it comes to God's plan, right? Like God has his plan, God accomplishes his plan. But from the human perspective, from our attempts to make plans and to carry out those plans, at times we experience what would be called failure. That, that, that didn't work or go the way that I anticipated or planned for it to go. And so it seemingly failed or it did go the way that I anticipated or desired for it to go. And so there's seeming success there, right? What we have to realize is that our failures, our successes, they all are determined by God's sovereign control, not our expertise, not our own strength, not our own abilities. They are determined by God's sovereign control, which means we trust him rather than ourselves when it comes to our provision and care, right? Our kids, we trust Jesus for everything. And he can, tr we can, he can provide us all that we need as we're trusting him. This passage is real similar to the, the uh, other fish account that we see in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. You may want to take some time to read through that uh, this week to compare and contrast. But there's enough dissimilarities between the two to give us confidence that these are two separate accounts, right? We know that there's two separate accounts when Jesus feeds the, the multitudes. He feeds 5,000, he feeds 4,000. We know there's two different accounts when he cleanses the temple, right? That there's additional details that are added that, that help us to see timelines, to see that, hey, there's there's multiple things going on here that would help us to see that these are two different situations, two different time periods, right? That's true here. The first fish account takes place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he's calling disciples to follow him, whereas here, at the end of his ministry, before he ascends to his father to remain there until the second coming, he is reaffirming who he is to his disciples, particularly in this post-resurrection time period where he is helping them to understand and see how do I relate now to the post-resurrected Christ. Things have changed. Things have drastically changed, right? Um, Jesus has accomplished things that previously hadn't been accomplished. And now he is helping them to see this is what post-resurrection looks like. This is, this is what post-resurrected Jesus does. Right, and so this is a this is a, a situation, a setting, a story where Jesus reveals Himself further. The disciples have traveled about eighty miles from where we last saw them in Jerusalem, meeting with Jesus in that upper room. They have traveled to Galilee to wait for Jesus. They were instructed to do this, right? So about eighty mile trip. They've come back to Galilee, uh, a heavy Gentile area. Matthew chapter twenty six, verse thirty two. Matthew chapter twenty eight, verses seven through ten. Mark chapter 16, verse 7. All three of those passages talk about Jesus communicating this expectation to go to Galilee to wait for him for further instruction. All right, so we know the disciples are being obedient. They have relocated to Galilee where there is to be this anticipation of a reunion with Jesus. The events here serve a purpose to further reveal that resurrected Jesus to his disciples, and indirectly to us, right? Like we learn things about Jesus because he reveals himself to his disciples here, right? So his revelation of himself to his disciples informs us about the post-resurrected Jesus as well. So this passage is extremely important and helpful to us because we're able to see who Jesus is after the resurrection, how he interacts, how he uh, works with his disciples, and not just having to lean on pre-resurrection Jesus to understand him. We get to see more about Jesus in his post-resurrected state. This chapter is also extremely important because it reestablishes Peter um, as the uh, leader and, and guide of the disciples in some ways, but, but ultimately reestablishes him as a useful vessel uh, for what Jesus is planning to do through him uh, to establish churches that will start to plant more churches, right? The last we really saw Peter, um, he was denying Jesus, right? Um, he has seen Jesus resurrected. They, they, they've certainly, in some form or fashion, had some type of um, encounters, conversations, discussions maybe, 
Um, but what we see later in this chapter, and we'll get into it next week, is Jesus uh, restoring Peter a- after those uh, denials. And so that's part of the reason this chapter is so important, too, because you look at last week and you're kind of like, you know what, that seems to wrap up. We don't need to talk about it anymore. Like John has kind of wrapped up his gospel. And then you have chapter 21 that seemingly comes after the conclusion. And so it's, this chapter is more like an epilogue, right? Um, kind of like in um, those of you that watch Lord of the Rings, that last one, um, Return of the King, like you feel like you're watching the ending of the movie about like five times, right? Because every time you see this scene, you're like, oh, the movie the credits are probably going to come. And then you go into this other scene, right? So this is kind of one of those situations where you thought maybe the chapter or the book could end with chapter 20, but then, oh, there's chapter 21 because there's this other story we need to kind of wrap up, and that's the story of Peter. Because if you're going to go into the book of Acts and you start to see Peter being useful, you may be questioning and wondering, like, well, well he was a denier of Jesus. Like, where, where did that get resolved? Where did that get fixed? And that's what happens in this chapter. These, these real-life events, right, they're really going fishing, they're catching real fish, can probably be understood in kind of a spiritual context when it comes to Christian ministry and evangelism because Jesus reinterprets their occupation that way, right? Like in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, he talks about them kind of putting their nets aside, uh, using their expertise when it came to fishing for fish. You're now going to be made fishers of men. I, I was... Uh, surprised to find it, and I I think this is valid based off the commentaries I was reading, that concept, fishers of men, was not necessarily coined first by Jesus. That that concept of fishers of men may have already been a concept that was being used by other philosophers and teachers. And the idea is consistent with how Jesus uses it. The idea was to be a fisher of men meant to capture them and basically seize them, capture them with with the truth that you were communicating, right? So to be a fisher of men is to go and to capture individuals with your message. And and that's certainly true what Jesus means by uh, being fishers of men from the Christian standpoint, right? Like we are to take the gospel, we are to communicate the gospel of Jesus, um, and, and the Holy Spirit then takes our message. So there's a supernatural piece that comes with being a fisher of men from Jesus' standpoint, supernatural perspective where the Holy Spirit takes control of man's heart and seizes them with that truth, right? Um, but certainly I think you can take some some allegory here about what's happening with their their labor all through the night. There's no results, no, no, no catching of fish. And then all of a sudden, boom, Jesus shows up and they're having unbelievable success as fishermen, right? Like all kinds of fish are coming. I think sometimes people take this a little too far. Like even some of the commentators were talking about the significance of the 153 number that at that time there may have been known uh, 153 different species of fish. And and this is an example of Jesus saying, Hey, you're going to be fishers of men. You're going to catch people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Um, That's true. I don't know that Jesus intended that with the 153 number. I don't know that there was 153 different species in that net. Maybe, but that, that's an example maybe of taking the analogy a little too far. A lot of people debate as to whether or not this is even obedient or disobedient for the disciples to be doing this. Um, sometimes people try to pitch this passage to say that the disciples have abandoned Jesus. They've gone back to their old way of life, and they are turned back into fishermen, and they, they are uh, lacking faith. And, and that may be true. Um, I just don't know that I feel that. When I, when I read and study this passage, I don't know that that just really stands out and comes out here. There, there may have been some lack of faith. There may have been some disobedience. I don't think Jesus really harps on that too much in this passage. I think there's some other things that Jesus intends to get across in this passage. So we're going we're gonna to approach it not so much were the disciples being obedient or disobedient, were they lacking faith or showing faith. We're going to kind of set that aside, and we can debate that later. We're going to try to hone in more on what I do think Jesus highlights in this passage um, for us to take away from it, right? There's multiple miracles happening in this passage. I don't know how many of you were able to uh, talk through these and see some of these. I think the lack of catching fish is just as much of a miracle as when they catch fish. And we'll talk about that some today. But I think the lack of catching fish is the true miracle here as much as the catching of fish. I think Jesus is making a point, and in order to make his point, they can't catch any fish, right? For him to really drive home his point they have to come up empty. They have to get skunked. 
all night long while they fish. Um, and so we'll talk about that miracle today. Obviously, the catch is a miracle. I think the preserved nets, right? John points out the fact that the nets weren't torn with, with the understanding and, and probably belief that they should have been. You know, John, with his experience, expects that the nets should have torn with the amount of fish that were there. And they don't. They don't tear, which is a, which is a miracle in itself, I think. And then I think there's there's a, a miracle intertwined here with the fact that Jesus is already on shore cooking fish, and he didn't fish, right? Where did his fish come from? Who knows? But but it seems to be miraculous in that he's already there with bread and fish, which implies he didn't even need them to catch fish, right? Like his provision uh, supersedes anything that we can bring to the table, right? Um, so I think that's interesting as well from a miraculous standpoint. He's already there. He's already got fish on the table before they show up. The thing that I want us to consider today as we work through this, and we'll, and we'll do it quickly, I want you to think through this, this question. What predispositions, big fancy word, what predispositions do we possess about Jesus, and do they help shape our rapid reaction properly to trust him? Let me say that again. What predispositions do we possess about Jesus and do they help shape our rapid reaction properly to trust him? Now, what do I mean by predisposition? Predisposition is basically this preconceived idea or biased perspective where you expect something, you have the, a tendency to expect something before it happens. Or you, you, you evaluate things or see circumstances based on a predetermined perspective, right? That's what I mean by predisposition. For example, one that kind of comes to mind today for me today right now is how we're filtering through content right now about what is true, what isn't true in regards to the spread of the coronavirus, right? Um, you've got some people, and I think we've got a mixture of people in our church, and honestly, I fall into the camp of it really depends on what day it is as to what I'm kind of thinking about all this. Um, but there's some people who have kind of remained in the camp of this is a, this is overblown. This may be, you know, tied to the, the political time that we're in with the election coming up. This isn't a big deal. Uh, we should be opening things up more quickly. We should have never closed things. Like there's there's that group of people. Then you're going to have a, a group of people who are far more cautious, reserved, um, really evaluating like you know, the, the safety measures and and where are we going? Should we be going there? That type of thing, right? And, and generally, we're starting to fall in, in one of those two camps. And, and honestly, because I, I find myself, again, I'm back and forth depending on what day it is. But I know whatever day it is, whichever camp I'm falling in, I tend to process through articles and videos or whatever based off of what I'm already kind of believing about the whole thing, right? So if I'm kind of in the camp of, man, I think we need to, we need to move forward, open things up, like this is it's time to get on with life again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find videos and read things, and when it's talking about that same perspective, I'm like, yeah, that's what I think too. But then there's other days where I'm like, you know what, we need to keep this thing shut down, right? Like, like this is going to spike back up, and people are going to be in danger of, of getting sick again. And, and, and then I, I'll, I'll read videos and process through things, and I'm, I'm bent towards believing the things that kind of um, reaffirm what I was already thinking going into it, right? So – that's an example of what I mean. I want to bring it back to what we think about Jesus and his provision and his care for us. Because we've talked all along in this study, we want to be people who fall in line with what John is, is purposed in his gospel, right? That I've written these things so that you'll believe, right? And so we've talked about, we want to narrow the gap between things happening in our life and how long it takes for us to trust Jesus, and I want you to think in terms of this today, that the more we can create this predisposition to believe Jesus provides for us, cares for us, takes care of us, works good in all circumstances, the more likely we are to believe those things when these things start to happen, right? If we can believe these things up front, that's how we lessen the gap of how long it takes for us to trust him when difficult circumstances come our way because we are expecting him, right? We have a tendency to expect him to provide for us and to care for us and to work good in these situations. So the more that we can build up this reservoir of, of um, preconceived beliefs 
that God works this way in our circumstances, when circumstances come our way, that gap of time that we're turning to trust in him really lessens. It really lessens because we're already entering into these difficult circumstances, believing that he works in the midst of our failures and our successes. Okay, so we'll come back to that idea as we work through this passage. Starting off here, number one, understand your failures can be divine miracles too. Understand that your failures can be divine miracles too. For our kids, God is always working in our failures. Understand your failures. And again, what we mean by failures is your attempts to do anything that you've planned to kind of carry out. That can be that can be earthly things and that can be spiritual things. I don't think we have to limit it to the spiritual only, but it certainly rings true. So any of the things that we we we, we aren't seeing maybe the the fruit or the harvest that we would expect to see, right? Like maybe maybe we're working hard, uh, applying ourselves, but instead of seeing a promotion at our job, we get fired from our job, right? Or from the spiritual side, maybe it's when we are investing in this individual, maybe sharing the gospel with this individual, hoping to see their salvation, and we just continue to to be um, rejected as the the delivery of the message, right? As the messenger, we are being rejected. And and, and we're like, I don't don't know why I've been so faithful to pray for this individual to share the gospel. Maybe it's somebody that's already saved, right? Like you've been pouring into somebody, sowing into somebody, and and they, they, they continue to yield themselves to sin. What we see in this passage is that our failures can be divine miracles too, that God can be at work in such a way where what we are attempting to do is being held up for a specific reason, for a specific purpose. Number one in our notes underneath this, our accomplishments are not tied to our own strengths, right? How how is it a divine miracle for God to not let them catch fish? Well, I think Jesus is teaching the disciples a lesson before they ever really get sent out without Jesus accompanying them right? Like he's about to commission them and he's about to go back to heaven and they're going to be uh, from, you know, lack of a better phrase, on their own, even though we know that Jesus says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, the Holy Spirit's coming, right? They don't have physical Jesus present with them moving forward. And I think Jesus wants to establish right off the bat, hey, your accomplishments and your seeming failures, they're not tied to your own strengths, Think about the disciples and their expertise here. They are expert fishermen. This is what they are good at. It's what they're good at, right? You could argue and say that they're not good at public speaking. They're not good at preaching. They're not good at disciple making. They're not good at working through unity issues within a church. Things that they're all going to be tasked to do here pretty soon, right? What they are good at is fishing, though. They're, they're experts at it. They know the time. They know the place. They know the bait. Right? Like they, they know all the, the questions that an amateur or uh, intermediate or beginner fisherman maybe wouldn't know. They, they wouldn't know this, right? They know that fishing at night is best. It brings the biggest return financially because you can catch the fish at night. You can sell it early to the market people in the morning, right, and make your money. They know the places to go. They know where the fish are. They know what bait to use. They're expert fishermen. It's a big deal for a professional to get skunked like this. We use the term skunked in the fishing world. When you, when you go out and you fish and you don't catch anything. It, it's, it's hard for a professional fisherman to get skunked. Sometimes it's hard for an intermediate beginner fisherman to get skunked, right? We've got a lot of people that fish in our church. More often than not, I would say the people that fish in our church go out and fish and they catch something, right? Most of the time when I don't catch a fish, I know I'm not going to catch a fish. I know the weather's not right. I know the the time of the day is not right. I know we're not using the right bait, but sometimes I do it anyways just for the sake of my boys are asking me to go fishing. And so I say, yeah, let's load them up. Let's go. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, we ain't going to catch anything. It's not the right time of day. I don't have the right bait. Uh, This isn't the great pond to go to, right? But you watch TV shows where sometimes these Bassmaster tournaments are portrayed on TV. It can be like raining and cold and dreary, like the worst conditions possible, and you watch these guys and they're just catching fish, right? Because when you're a professional fisherman, you're really good at it and it's hard to fail at it. That's why I think it's such a miracle here that they don't catch anything. 
think Jesus allows them to fail in their area of expertise to remind them that they need him for everything, not just some things, right? Jesus is saying, you're going to need me for everything, not just the things that you think you're weak at. You're going to need me at the things that you're, you're strong at as well. What a great reminder to us, right? Because we are, we are people who tend to allow pride to creep into our life. It, it fleshes itself out in a lot of different ways. But typically, when we think about what we need Jesus for, even if we may not uh, verbalize this, we know we need Jesus in the areas that we consider ourselves weak. But a lot of times, we don't necessarily think we need Jesus in areas that we consider ourselves strong. And I think what Jesus does here is he teaches the disciples a lesson that you need me at all times. You need me in everything, whether you think you're good at it or not. Regardless of our strengths, experiences, gifts, abilities, apart from him, what does Jesus say? We can do nothing. We can do nothing. John 15, 5. Just you know, a couple months ago, we're going through John chapter 15. Jesus talks about that concept of uh, the, the vine and the branches, and he's talking about the disciples having to stay dialed in with him if they are going to be fruitful, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus helps them to see that right here, that, that ultimately he's the provider of fish. He's going to be the provider of men when it comes to the ministry sense. But from the physical, earthly job sense, the fruit that we even experience in our jobs, God controls it. He controls it, whether we're seemingly failing or seemingly succeeding. It's all designed by God, his control, to move us forward in our faith. Number two, our accomplishments are based on God's sovereign control. So our accomplishments are not tied to our strengths. Instead, they are based on God's sovereign control. I believe that God supernaturally rerouted the fish all night long away from their boats and nets. He miraculously hindered their efforts. They weren't going to catch a fish that night no matter what they did. Right? It's not a case where, you, where they would have gotten back and said, oh, you know what, if we'd have used blue instead of chartreuse, we probably would have caught something. Right? They weren't catching anything that night because it was completely by God's design that they were going to get skunked, right? I think it's not that there was only one school of fish in that whole that whole sea, right? I think there were fish all over the place, and God was like, no, 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 no. I think he created like this whole area, and no matter where the disciples went, the fish went somewhere else. He's helping them to see, hey, I'm completely in control, and, and you can't do anything. You can't find any success in any part of your life. Without me, I'm the source of it. They caught nothing so Jesus' power can be demonstrated anew to them. Their failure is going to help them to better see the role Christ plays to continue, uh, plans to continue playing in their life, right? What we're going to see here is that I think Jesus wants them to know the post-resurrected Christ keeps providing for them, that nothing changes there. He's about to leave and go away. He is still their source of provision. He's been their provision for the last three years of they, as they've walked around, talked with him, ministered with him, he has provided all kinds of things for him, for them, the disciples. He's going to keep doing that. Even after death, after resurrection, he is still their source of provision, which means their frustrated attempts were just as miraculous as the coming catch, right? He is doing something miraculous so that they can have a lesson taught to them. And Jesus says, you know what? The fish ain't coming to your net until I tell them to. They're not coming to your net until I tell them to. And this is a good reminder to us that we might be doing everything right, and yet everything feels like it's not working. Again, that, 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 that's, that's earthly, physical things, and that's spiritual things as well. We can be laboring hard at something, doing everything right, being obedient, and yet we feel like nothing's working out like it, like it seemingly should. Right, And we can take encouragement. We can take heart that sometimes our failures are by design. Sometimes the thwarting of our plans is by design because Jesus wants to teach us something. He's got something miraculous in store for us. And the only way it becomes miraculous is by the failures leading up to it. Right? Think about the fact that they caught 153 fish over the course of the night. Would we even talk about it? I don't think so, right? If they had caught 153 fish before they ever see Jesus, I don't think we talk about it. It's the whole night of not catching anything 
and then boom, 153 fish at a time where the best part of the day of fishing, the nighttime, has passed, that they end up catching these fish. That's what makes the miracle, is that they've had all these failures leading up to it, and then boom, Jesus' power is on display. Don't discount the fact that sometimes we go through seasons of frustration in our own life so that the miracle, so that the, the, the miracle looks all the more miraculous, right? That Jesus really solidifies himself as our provider because we've exhausted all of our efforts to provide for ourselves, to do it our own way. And here's the catch. They didn't realize at any point during that time what was happening. They didn't realize that their season, their night of frustration was going to serve a bigger purpose. And we don't always get that insight either. And that's where I'm saying we need to predisposition because let's just say that that they didn't, uh, they didn't get to see that miraculous thing happen. Maybe God had some other purpose there that wasn't going to be readily revealed to them. What we want is to be the type of people who can go through a season of frustration, a season of failure, a season where our plans aren't working out the way that we want to, and yet trust that God is still in control. We want to believe before those things start happening that God is always in control, even when things don't work out the way we want them to. So that when things stop working out the way that we want them to, we're immediately inclined to believe and trust, believe and trust him, right? That we've, we've, we've lessened that gap because going into the circumstance, and we're believing that he's going to provide, right? Like we're ready. We're ready to, to see his provision because we believe that it comes all the time. We need a predisposition that believes failures are just as much a part of his plan as successes. Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, we sow in water, but God gives the increase, right? Paul's talking about the fact that some of these people are arguing about being followers of Paul, followers of Apollos. Paul's like, hey, let's just, let's just be real with it here. It doesn't matter who's planting or who's watering after somebody else is planted. God's the one who gives the increase, right? Paul says, look, it's really all about God. It doesn't matter what Apollos is doing. It doesn't matter what Paul's doing. It doesn't matter how good we are or how ungood we are at what we're doing. God's the one who gives the increase. God's the one who gives the increase, right? We make plans, but God determines the outcomes, right? James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17, cautions us about being too specific about the plans that we try to make, right? That we make plans, but that we, we uh, encompass it with a mindset that it really depends on what the Lord wills, right? We, we make plans, but we're not frustrated when our plans are frustrated, right? Let me say that again. We make plans, but we don't get frustrated when our plans are frustrated because we believe that he's got bigger purposes in play. Be encouraged that fruit is promised for those who keep trusting, obeying, and abiding. John chapter 14, 13 and 14, John chapter 15, 7 through 11, and verse 16. All three of those passages. It's, it's coming from that concept where Jesus is talking to his disciples about being uh, faithful to abide in him and that he's promised fruit. He promises his disciples will be fruitful, promises us that we will be fruitful, but it necessitates that we keep trusting, we keep obeying, and we keep abiding in him. We keep doing good. We keep doing right, and we don't give up. Galatians 6, 9, we will reap if we don't give up, right? We will reap if we don't give up. So understand that your failures can be divine miracles too. Number two, humble yourself and listen to others when you fail. Humble yourself and listen to others when you fail. For our kids, when we fail, others can help us. All right, so they fish all night. They don't catch any fish. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Here's the kicker. They didn't know it was Jesus, and yet they were willing to listen to the advice of this unknown man. The disciples are demonstrating a humble spirit here. Uh, at least it comes across that way. Maybe they're just doing it because what, what else do we have to do here? Uh, but there seems to be a humble spirit here in that they, they're willing to listen to the advice of somebody when they realize, man, I've exhausted all my efforts here. What else do I have to do but to listen to the advice of somebody else? Number one, don't let pride keep you from listening to others' advice. These guys don't act like normal fishermen. You talk to a fisherman who, who's really prideful about his fishing, you ask him if he caught anything, um, he's not going to tell you that he didn't catch anything. He's going to tell you that it's been slow today, right? 
You also talk to a fisherman who's catching a ton. He's probably not going to tell you that either. He's going to tell you that I've caught a few, right? Doesn't want to give up his great spot of fishing and let you know where to catch the fish. He also doesn't want to tell you how bad of a day he's had, right? So fishermen are notorious for being a little eek about, about what they've really done that day with their fish, right? These guys are just, you know what? No, we didn't catch any fish, right? They, they kind of own their failures. They would have been frustrated, disappointed, dejected uh, at their night where they didn't catch anything. <clears throat> to have someone give advice would probably seem like the last thing that they wanted to hear. But I think it's interesting to see that they weren't prideful enough to not listen, um, that they felt like there was something about whoever this was and what they were saying was worth doing. And I wonder if it's not connected to number two. Number two is don't let pride keep you from remembering God's previous works. Don't let pride keep you from remembering God's previous works. Meaning don't have God provide for you and then you revert back to uh, a perspective where you feel like you can self-sustain yourself and now you forget about how important it is for God to work to provide for you. I, I wonder, they don't know that it's Jesus fully yet, and I don't know why after post-resurrection, Jesus is hard to discern. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't, I, don't, I don't fully understand what's going on there. They don't know that it's Jesus, though, right? But I wonder if somehow, some way, in the conversation that's happening, somebody didn't say, remember that time when we didn't catch anything that one night, too, and we threw it on the other side and we caught fish? Let's, let's try it, right? Like maybe, maybe Jesus will do something for us. Whether that's Jesus or not, let's at least try it, because this did work before, right? Um, don't be prideful in that you forget God's previous works. I have to think they remembered this to some level. And, and they listen to the advice, right? They yield to it, and they see a great return from it, right? Number three, celebrate God's divine goodness when you succeed. That's our, that's our, de that's our definition for that we've been using in this uh, gospel for what it means to glorify God, right? We talk about celebrating his divine goodness, Right? We glorify God when, when we see him providing for us, when we see that, for lack of a better word, success. Right, Whether it's in our, our earthly jobs and our earthly endeavors or whether it's in our spiritual endeavors. When things seem to be working out, right, then we have to celebrate God's divine goodness. So tempting sometimes to take credit ourselves, so tempting to think that our expertise or our wisdom or our experience has led to this being effective, we have to celebrate God's divine goodness. For our kids, we should praise God when he helps us. I love the fact here, number one, we should see Jesus immediately in the midst of our accomplishments. The disciples, as soon as they start catching these fish, know who it is now, right? They're quick to recognize the power of Jesus in this miraculous catch. Only Jesus could have done this. Only Jesus could have done this. As soon as they start catching, John peeps up here and says, Peter, it's the Lord. Right? It's the only thing that makes sense right now. Um, they catch 153 fish, which further, I don't think there's any significance to the number personally. I do think that it further verifies that John was an eyewitness to all of this, right? Down to the point that he knows exactly how many fish were there because he probably helped count them, right? But they immediately turn to praising Jesus for this provision, which begs the question do we praise God adequately when he does something for us, especially something that we've asked him to do? I can't help but think about the story of the 10 lepers where they're crying out to God for mercy, crying out to God for healing. God heals them and they run away and, and only one comes back to thank right? We can't be the type of people who pray and ask and trust God, have him come through and do something for us, and then we neglect to give him the praise for it. And Peter is overwhelmed with the desire to get to Jesus to pray for them, to, to praise him, which leads me into number two. We should rejoice that fellowship rather than fear describes our relationship with Jesus now. We should rejoice that fellowship rather than fear describes our relationship with Jesus now. Now, you wouldn't pick up on this unless you had read the previous account. But if you go back and read in Luke chapter 5, one of the major differences in these two accounts is that at the end of the first account, what does Peter do? Peter is bowing before Jesus. He's, he's talking about how sinful he is, and he's telling Jesus to do what? Depart from me. Depart from me, I am a sinful man. You don't have that attitude by Peter here. And here's the kicker. He has more reason to feel sinful, ashamed, and embarrassed this time around. I don't know what his life was like before Jesus, but I can tell you there is far more embarrassment and uh, guilt upon Peter this time around because he's 
said all these boisterous things about, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, Jesus, I'll be with you all the time. And then he denies him. And Jesus cuts his eyes at him when it happens, right? This is when you would expect Peter to have the mentality of, depart from me, Jesus, I am so sinful, I am such a failure. But I think Peter gets what I've been trying to help you guys get all through this study is that if Jesus isn't willing to stone us, we don't stone ourselves, right? Jesus is our advocate. What he has accomplished on the cross and then through the resurrection is why Peter can run to him versus telling Jesus, flee from me. If I'm in your presence, I deserve death because I'm sinful, right? Instead, Peter's like, I got to get to Jesus because that's my advocate. And I have far more reason to cry out about my sin now than I did previously, but my sin's been dealt with. My sin's been forgiven, right? And so he is running to Jesus to celebrate his divine goodness. We can do the same. We have that same freedom from sin, that freedom from guilt, that freedom from condemnation. And we can run to Jesus and we can celebrate his divine goodness um, as, as he delivers in our life, right? Um, and we certainly should be quick to give him the credit for any accomplishments that we see. Number four, trust the resurrected Jesus who keeps providing. Trust the resurrected Jesus who keeps providing. I think what Jesus is trying to get across here in this first part of the chapter, before he restores Peter, he's helping his disciples see that time with Jesus hasn't ended, that he's still the same Jesus. He's still the same Jesus who serves and provides. They make this great catch. They start dragging the fish to the, to the, to the shore. Verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Peter went, Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Number one here, and for our kids, Jesus provides uh, for his disciples, uh, provides for us just like he did his disciples, right? Number one, Jesus shows that even in the post-resurrected state, he still plans to provide. He is going to continue to meet their needs like he promised. I love the fact that he's already got fish prepared here. Right? There's already fish waiting for them. Anybody that knows that when you've caught fish, I mean, there's a preparation that has to take place before you can even start to eat it. Right? And when you come back, we, we've done this before when we've gone hunting down at Chris Hedman's cabin. You, you've, you've exhausted yourself, whether it's fishing or hunting. You get done like you were ready to eat. A lot of times we would come back to Chris Hedman's cabin we got to fire up the grill. We got to prep the meat. We got to get it on the, the, the grill. We got to start cooking it. And it's probably an hour, hour and a half before we can sit down and eat. Jesus is like, Hey, you guys have had a, a full night of fishing. and not caught anything up until the very last moment here. Now you've caught everything, right? Good news is we can just set those fish aside. We don't have to clean them right now if we don't want to, because I've already got fish prepared for you. All right. It's a reminder to us that, that he doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything that we bring to the table. But he allows us to participate, right? He says, hey, why don't y'all bring some of that fish over here too? We can add it to it. We need some of yours. We need some of mine. But I've already prepared it for you. He takes care of us. He provides for us. Number two, he shows that even in his post-resurrected state, he still plans to serve. I mean, here's the... Here's the God-man who has defeated death, defeated Satan, defeated sin, overcome everything, right? And he's telling them, hey, y'all sit down and, and let me start passing the food around, right? I washed your feet before. I'm feeding your faces now, right? He's, he's that kind of Jesus, right? One who deserves every right to be sitting on the shore saying, bring me something to eat. For all that I've done for you, bring me something to eat. And yet Jesus shows us that even in his most victorious state, he is still very intentional to provide for us, to take care of our needs. That's such an encouragement to me um, 2,000 years later to know that I serve that Jesus, that I follow that Jesus, one who is very mindful of me and my needs, one who is very mindful to allow me to fail when I need to fail so that I can be reminded that I can't do anything apart from him, right? I need, my, my, my sinful, prideful self needs failure in my life so that I can be reminded that I need Jesus, right? I want to have a predisposition to be prepared, thankful, 
grateful and to approach failures with a trusting heart, knowing that, man, he is sovereign over my failures as much as he is my successes. Man, he was absolutely sovereign over that fish catch. I think he was absolutely sovereign over the night where they didn't catch anything either, though. Kept the fish away for a purpose, and that was to teach them that he is their provider. They don't provide for themselves. He provides for them. All right? Application, three points that I want you to kind of consider here. Um, I want you to think about your own life, areas of your life where you're currently failing. Again, we use that term failing uh, from an earthly standpoint, obviously not from God's standpoint, right? Areas of your life where things aren't going the way that you plan for them to go or want for them to go, what, what do you need to do to address those? Do you need to trust him more? Are you starting to, to, to lack trust and faith that God is doing something there? Do you need to be reinvigorated to trust him more? Um, do you need to be willing to open yourself up to the advice of others maybe to help you in that situation? Or do you have a healthy perspective and you just need to, to remind yourself, I got to keep persevering in this, right? I got to keep doing the right thing, doing what I know to do, being obedient, trusting that um, God gives the increase. Question number two, areas of life where you're currently succeeding, things are going well, things seem to be going the direction that you plan for them to go. Are you giving him the glory that he deserves for it? Are you taking too much of the credit? And you are if you're taking any of the credit, right? Are you, are you starting to to think highly of yourself because of the way things are going in your life. Do you need to be brought back to a mindset of praise and glory to him for his divine goodness? Are you starting to shift it all to trust your own strength? And then last and number three, tying it back to what we're currently dealing with right now. I want you to evaluate your predispositions during this pandemic. Are you prone to trust him to provide and care for you? Do you have this, this perspective built up, this biasness built up that says, my God comes through for me. My God delivers me. My God provides for me. Um, my God works even in my failures. That predisposition is going to help you trust him in the midst of whatever this looks like moving forward. Whatever it looks like moving forward. You need to have this, this, this mindset built up that says, I trust him. I believe him. I follow him. He's my good shepherd. He is going to take me through the valley of the shadow of death. There is going to be what feels like failures and plans that are being thwarted. But I got to trust that there is purpose behind every single one of those things lessons to be learned behind every single one of those things. And on the other side, I'm coming out and there are green pastures and there are still waters, right? I'm following the shepherd who is my lamb. That's the perspective we have to have. Our family worship questions. In what ways has God continued to provide for us over the past two months, right? Kind of think back through, it's been, it's been a long time. I think this is week eight uh, of us being up here. So the past eight weeks, past two months, what are some things that you've seen God do where you've been provided for. And that doesn't mean that only those who still have jobs are the ones being provided for, right? Like you could have lost your job and you still have things to be grateful and thankful for because God is still providing for you. Number two, in what ways can we prepare ourselves better to trust him with the next two months? Man, how do we look back and, and see how God's provided for us? Let that speak conviction to us if we have failed to trust him in any way, if we have failed to thank him in any way for his provision, like if we've been anxious and troubled and fearful, right? Let's look back at those two months. Let's rejoice and praise him for how he has provided for us. Let's use his faithfulness over the past two months to better prepare us for the next two months. Let's reduce the amount of troubled hearts, anxious feelings, and fearful mindsets, right? But let's lessen the gap. Let's, let's shrink it down for how long it takes us to really believe that he's in control. Because some of us may lose our jobs over the next two months, right? Some of our plans that we have, they may fail. And we're going to have to rely upon the fact that God has been faithful to us in the past. He's provided fish in the past. And even though we've got a season of, of night where, where we're not bringing in anything, the joy's coming in the morning, right? He's working in the midst of our failures. He's working in the midst of our circumstances. He is bringing good for his children. Let's keep speaking those truths 
to ourselves as we approach whatever the next two months look like. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. And God, you are good. No matter what the last two months have looked like for us individually, and all of us have had various things happen to us, we haven't had a consistent two months for any of us. Some of us have kept jobs. Some of us have lost jobs. Some of us have kept the same income, kept the same hours. Some of us have seen that reduced. But God, you have been good to all of us. That is the consistent piece. And God, help us to be reminded that when we make plans and they don't come to fruition, when we set out to do something and it doesn't go the way that we anticipated, God, help us to see that um, our lack of accomplishment can be just as much of a divine miracle as when you bless us tremendously. That you're the type of God who, um, who works in the midst of difficult circumstances as much as you do during the, uh, the joyful circumstances. God, help us to see that you are teaching us lessons as you carry us through difficult times. God, help us to, to find um, just a renewed desire to keep sowing, to keep laboring well. From the spiritual side, God, that we would keep, we'd keep doing good. We would not lose heart. We would not grow faint. Um, that we would, we would keep doing well, knowing that we will reap a harvest when you desire to give that increase. We thank you for those truths. We thank you for that encouragement. We thank you for those promises. God, help us over the next two months to, to make much of you as we weather these circumstances, no matter what the future looks like. And at this point, uh, we're probably best to not make plans uh, that, are, that, are too, that are too tightly uh, made um, because you're, you're showing a willingness to, to just blow up our plans constantly right now. Um, God, I pray that whatever the next two months looks like, what will be most true about us is that we are a people who have trusted you through all of it, um, who have continued to trust you even when things maybe look bleak um, and don't appear to be going in a direction that we would want them to go in our personal life. God helps to keep trusting you, knowing that in the post-resurrected state, you have made it very clear that you are a God who continues to provide and a God who continues to serve. We praise you and thank you so much that we can cling to that this morning as we leave today. Help us to keep clinging to it throughout this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.